wow. Okay. <laughs> I just went through an entire introduction on mute and I, I apologize. Um, so back to it while we wait for people to get here. Um, I uh, start all of this off with uh, the introduction to CASA. And uh, if you're new here, go check, our, check us out online, uh, casaa.org. That's the Consumer Advocates for Smoke-Free Alternatives Association. Lots of information about vaping, tobacco harm reduction, snooze, nicotine pouches, all the wonderful things that we use to stay smoke-free. Uh, and of course, opportunities to get engaged on policy issues, state and local legislation, and right now we have a comment uh, engagement up for the proposed ban on menthol and the proposed ban on flavored cigars. Remember, that's two different rules. Um, so we've basically left you a big blank page to go and, and, and express your opinion on that. Definitely take the opportunity to encourage FDA to authorize more smoke-free products in flavors other than tobacco that people are using to uh, quit smoking cigarettes. So um, with that, welcome to our Twitter space. We do this every two weeks. Um, just a quick programming note for all of this, the CASA media platforms. Uh, we're taking the weekend off. It's a holiday weekend. Everybody go enjoy the springtime weather uh, and your friends and family. Uh, and of course, the observance of it's Memorial Day, right? Um, so um, getting right into it, I'd I'm honored and privileged to introduce our guests tonight. Uh, we have Mark Sliss back. Uh, I believe this is a third time uh, that Mark has been with us. Uh, so welcome back, Mark. Uh, and uh, Mark is, of course, a, a vape shop owner in Michigan, uh, an outspoken advocate in favor of, uh, you know, in support of tobacco harm reduction uh, and all the wonderful work that he does in his community to uh, help people quit smoking and switch to safer alternatives. We're also joined by Annie Claycamp. I think I've got that pronounced correctly. Um, Annie is a, an author and scientist, uh, an experimental psychologist, uh, and uh, with a, a, a focus on uh, substance use and, and drugs. Uh, current position uh, working at the American Society of Addiction Medicine. Uh, also in the past, uh, you've been a uh, worked for Penny Associates, uh, who I've had the privilege of rubbing elbows with with you and, and Joe Gitchell and Robin Gougelet and some other folks at, at Penny. Um, very much appreciate their work. Um, and uh, also a, an author on Filter. You've written several articles for Filter uh, and encourage everybody to go check those out. So without further ado, welcome to our Twitter spaces, guys. And I, we, you know, the, the topic of discussion here is the e-cigarette summit, which happened uh, last week. And um, I, I guess, or was it? Yeah, it was last week. Um, <laughs> uh, I'd, I'd like to start with Annie. I know that your time is short tonight, um, but uh, you were in the audience. And uh, I'm sort of curious, um, did you have any big takeaways or revelations? Or um, were there any really interesting side conversations that you had at the conference that uh, might be worth noting? Um, well, first off, thanks for having me and hello to everybody. Hopefully you can hear me okay. This is my first time doing one of these. Um, but yeah, I so just to give everybody a little perspective on how I went into the eSig Summit, I the last one I went to was in 2018. That's when I was at Penny Associates as a scientist. I left Penny that year because I was getting a lot of pushback um, due to the affiliation. At that time, we were working with Reynolds on tobacco harm reduction. So the affiliation with Big Tobacco, and I wrote a critique of the Surgeon General's report that um, 
I got a, a response from Brian King and others on it that basically made me realize if I kept my affiliation, I wouldn't be able to publish. So fast forward four years. Um, I've done a lot of other things than tobacco harm reduction in the meantime, but stuck with it and been writing from filter. And so going this year, I will say I, it was like, I tried to put myself in 2018 and then in current year for ESEG summit. And one thing I noticed just personally, it, it felt like people were talking more, including scientists that are notoriously um, in the tobacco control area. I mean, respected Benowitz and such, such, but talking about e-cigarettes as cessation tools, which is weird, right? That we haven't been for many years, but I feel like in 2018 in tobacco control circles in the U S that was really not allowed. And um, I, I appreciated that this time around, although everything felt still cautious, even at the East Egg Summit, which is often more open to this. And I, I was disappointed that honestly, I hadn't seen more evolve since 2018 in terms of science and just how we were talking about it. And Ray and I gave a presentation, which I thought was great on just the evidence and how it is presented in, um, you know, the published literature, it really, there's so much bias, there's so much spin that it's really hard to take anything from it. And I think that's stunning a lot of what we're hoping to do with THR. Yeah. On that, on that point about the, the sort of move towards talking about cessation, do you see that as a positive or is it, um, perhaps, uh, I think, I feel like there's a, pit, a pitfall there where, we get sort of uh, corralled into only being a cessation product. Yeah, for sure. I think there's a pitfall and, um, you know, the idea of only looking at it as a, you know, something that should be FDA approved on the cedar side, like a treatment, which huge problem and decreases access. I would say from my perspective, and, and I know not everybody knows this, but like I came up through the ranks of quote unquote tobacco control in the sense I was doing nicotine laboratory based research with humans in like the early 2000s. So 2001 to 2007, so right before, um, you know, Hanlick and everything came over. So I was studying the patch and um, as, which as we all know is a cessation tool. And I feel like the people I worked with and know that often a lot of them that I trained with are prohibition focused, the, the ability for anyone to acknowledge of them to acknowledge these devices as potentially helping people is huge, which I know that's, that's not helpful to us in our work, but um, I guess it's sad and good because why is, why is it so hard for people to admit in U S tobacco control that these can help people shift away from smoking. But I do hear you. And I feel like maybe sort of with our training in the US on nicotine being only some sort of treatment and not a consumer product that, you know, is healthy and fun. Um, it Yeah, it's like the only way to see the benefit is to somehow frame them as only a, a medication. And so I hear you on that, Alex. <laughs> Yeah, and, and maybe expanding it out a little bit, and, and this is also a question for Mark. I, I think we're trying to make him a speaker here, but um, uh, because he was he was on the panel at the at the end, 
Um, you know, the, the question that um, David Ashley posed to the panelists was, you know, where do you see the, the marketplace in five years? And so I, I'm, I'm curious, you know, specifically with your uh, focus on substance use uh, and, uh, you know, acknowledging how we're seeing, you know, cannabis being legalized and regulated and, and, and a movement towards, um, you know, at least decriminalizing and perhaps regulating a marketplace for all other drugs. Um, do you see nicotine, you know, being preserved in that or, or uh, more broadly, I, I think that conversation that we're having about drugs regulation, um, for lack of a better term, re recreational drugs regulation, uh, having some benefits for, um, for, for regulating the nicotine marketplace. Yeah, I would hope um, that we could all view recreational drugs similarly. And if we're deregulating psychedelics and we're, we're thinking about cannabis differently, I do say, I do have concerns that that's not happening. So for example, when I was at Hopkins for my postdoc, I would assist on the psychedelic trials. We had guided sessions um, and I was just like a volunteer because I found it fascinating that we were looking at this drug that had basically been, you know, abolished or, you know, sidelined into regulatory isolation. And now it could be a tool and a positive. And I talked to people around that that were in that research, are actively in it, are actively watching, you know, the landscape around psychedelics shift and there's just this whole different view um and i i, I feel um it's depressing sometimes because it's like because nicotine and tobacco has this um affiliation with industry at some point it's like holding people back from seeing it in the same light um as something like a psychedelic where it could it, it's not black or white and prohibiting it is not a good thing. Like all these things we're seeing evolve with views of these drugs that have been prohibited. I, I really don't see people in the U S actively embracing it. And when I say people, I am thinking from the perspective right now as like academic researchers, right? So those aren't really the people that, um, I might need to talk about, but they're the people that I've studied with and then I'm talking to at conferences and it's, it's frustrating that they can't view alongside psychedelics and cannabis, tobacco and tobacco harm reduction similarly. Yeah, you, you brought up a good uh, point or distinction there uh, between the people and the academics. And, and I, I want to bring Mark in now that we got uh, got the microphone working. Um, <clears throat> Mark, sort of the same question for you, but um, you know, since you were on the, the panel, the same question to start things off, you know, any important takeaways or revelations you might have, have had from the conference? I am sort of curious for those who haven't watched the panel that you were on. There were some uh, at least I perceived some really some kind of tense moments between between you and FDA. Uh, and then also you got a bit of a response from uh, Kathleen Hoke. It seemed like uh, she followed you, followed your presentation. Um, so just kind of curious, uh, you know, the same question that I, I posed to Annie, you know, were there any big revelations or takeaways from the conference and, and did you have any meaningful side conversations? Um, yeah. So, so my big takeaways are probably, uh, due to the fact this is the first time I've ever been to anything like this. Um, so, so, so everything was new to me. Um, the things that I saw, um, I think the conference is absolutely, absolutely amazing. 
because of the side conversations, the, the sharing of ideas and concepts that I saw going on around me and, and as well um, got to participate in, I thought that was absolutely amazing. Um, you know, on top of amazing speakers and, and, and that kind of thing. But just the idea sharing was um, amazing. That was, that's really my big takeaway. So was there anything in, in particular, maybe that, that um, I, and, and I, I am doing just a little bit of fishing here. Uh, you know, did you have an opportunity to speak with Matt Holman afterwards or, or Kath, Kathleen Hoke or um, uh, uh, I'm forgetting her name, uh, Miss Crosby? <laughs> oh, yeah, I think she's also Kathleen. Okay. Um, no, I, I really wanted to speak to Matt Holman for a couple of reasons. Um, and uh, I was not able to track him down uh, following the discussion panel. In fact, somebody told me he left. I, I don't know if that's true, but I never saw him again. Well, I think government employees Sad turn into pumpkins at four o'clock, so they, they got to get somewhere safe by then. Um, well, he wasn't terribly happy either. So, <laughs> um, and, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to him. I, I got the impression when things got really heated, he, he seemed upset, angry, and perhaps even a bit embarrassed. And I wondered if he was that upset over that short conversation that perhaps he, he believes a little bit differently than his job allows him to say. I think that's, I, I, I feel like I can agree with you. I didn't, you know, I wasn't there, wasn't face to face, but I, I feel like we sort of joke amongst ourselves, you know, that there's like five people at FDA that absolutely get it. They're just sort of stuck. Um, you know, I, Annie's story about your uh, response to the Surgeon General's report. And I, I, I swear, I, I think by the end of the year, I'm going to get a panel of people together for, for one of our podcasts or Twitter spaces of folks who have just been blackballed by the tobacco control industry. Um, and so we'll send you an invite for that. Annie. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, before I, I, I lose my train of thought, which I too late, it's already gone. Um, I, I did. I, I, one of the things that stuck out to me uh, in it seemed like Kathy Hoke's response to you, Mark, was, you know, you did a really good job of pointing out how you deal with customers and that, you know, that relationship, it's a very personal relationship to begin with. Right. Every time somebody comes in, it's, you know, how much do you smoke? How long have you been smoking? What are your favorite flavors? And, and beyond it, I think that's sort of a natural start to get into that, getting to know the person. And well, well, it has to be, you know, including like, what do you do for a living? Because the truck driver who sits behind the wheel for 14 hours a day with nothing else to do needs a different solution than somebody who has a five minute cigarette break three times a day. Right. They can't use yeah. the same device in the same nicotine level. That truck driver wants to puff all day long, nonstop. <laughs> so he, he wants something with a lower nicotine level that he can do that with. Um, where somebody who has a five minute cigarette break, uh, they may need a whole lot of nicotine and a few short puffs. So you have to learn a lot about who they are and what they do and what their day is like to give them the proper solution. And so, yeah, I think maybe this is a, a good pivot for, for Annie to jump in. I don't know uh, whether or not this is exactly your wheelhouse, but, um, you know, Kathy Hoke presented this as, as uh, you know, certainly humanizing the people that are working for, for the Maryland, uh, you know, Tobacco Control Center, Public Health Departments. Um, 
but also it seemed like it, it, it seems to me that this idea of getting to know people individually is a bit revolutionary. So my, my question is, you know, is this a new revelation for tobacco control or is this something that's been building for years? Um, so first I have to say, Mark killed it. I was in the room. I felt the energy change. I loved it, Mark. I know it's, I get, it's hard for me to speak. And to know this was your first time going there, it, it was just so valuable what you said. And, you know, you and I have talked before, your stories, actually, it, everything you represented up there. And I, you know, I could sense your frustration, which I think was important. You really represented the voices of so many consumers. So I, I'm not just saying that because we're talking together today. I, I hope that you know how important it was to hear you speak and and also how you share your stories, because these relationships um, are, well, I'm preaching to the choir here, but it's essential. And um, so I'm going on there, but I, I will, no, I, so let, how can I answer this? So I, let me start by admitting my faults in this area and like the relationships and hearing people. So I, when I was in the ivory tower academia, you know, like, plugging along, you know, I did, I ran a study for nicotine patch, had over a hundred people in that study. They came in for six hours each. I was looking how the patch interacts when you smoke a cigarette. So if you're wearing the patch, you know, does it blunt the effects? Again, this is before e-cigs were on the market and not one of those participants did I ever think to give a copy of the publication that came from that study. I never once you know, in some of it's IRB, you know, I'm not supposed to have a personal relationship, but like that, that um, gap between a researcher or someone in academia, and I can't speak for government because I'm not there. And, but the same thing. And then the actual people that the reason we're getting, getting this funding from NIH to study, they're not part of it. They have paywalls. They can't get to the articles. It's, it's messed up. It's not isolated to tobacco. I'm working on it broader with substance use in general, but I will say outside of tobacco, I'm seeing more movement on this. So um, people with lived experience, you know, having more of a voice, um, the Urban Survivors Union with engaging with researchers, and they've had a hard time. But for tobacco, I personally feel like from my viewpoint within academia, at least, like this is some sort of blind spot that researchers just aren't hearing or seeing the importance of um, not just lip service to the idea of engaging with people with lived experience, blah, blah, blah. Like, let's engage everyone in designing studies and writing up the results and writing up guidelines. Why aren't there consumers involved when we have national guidelines, like the Surgeon General's report on e-cigarettes or other health products, like, or other products like that? Like, they, this happens with other guidelines. And so, I, I feel like it's not novel and it's embarrassing that as hum, humans, we're not engaging like this. But I also have to admit my fault being in that ivory tower and isolated from the reality of people smoking because I was raised in Eastern Kentucky. I grew up smoking, but it never clicked with me. So when I'm studying smoking in the 2000s, I'm not a smoker, yet I'm, I'm trying to help people smoking. So I'm, I'm sort of getting frustrated at myself, but I hope that answers your questions. I think, or your question, I, I heard a lot of that at the e summit, this idea of engagement and 
relationship building and, and, you know, I'm not seeing it in a lot of ways. I'm not seeing it with consumers. I'm not seeing it with maybe patients or people that actually want to stop smoking with a medication. I'm not seeing it with industry. There's just all these silos and it's frustrating. Well, I just want to say that, that my approach comes from my experience um, when I smoked. Um, I, I, I tried a couple of, uh, uh, like the health department, and go in and ask them for help. And, um, you know, when you do something like that, they don't ask you anything, not even your name. They just start telling you this is what you have to do without knowing anything about you. And, that, and, I, and I remembered that. So basically my approach is doing the exact opposite of what <laughs> I experienced with tobacco control. And honestly, I think that's why it works. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think, um, and I'll, I'll uh, I, you may have already answered this question and I, I, I neglected to include it in your introduction, Annie, but uh, you know, it, 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 you, you do have this focus on removing barriers between the public and public health policy and, and I assume science. So uh, in case there was anything, you know, more to add to that, what, what does that look like? What is, are there the mechanics you can describe of, of how to tear down those barriers? Is it just as simple as reaching out to, uh, you know, affected populations or, or what, what more do you think needs to happen to, to, to tear down these walls? Well, I think, honestly, people coming out of academia need to stop talking and listening. And I feel like until I started doing that, working for Penny um, and having the chance to meet people and honestly, just sort of letting go of the ego and trying to hear what was going on and not just from other scientists. So I, I think it's getting in uncomfortable conversations, but being respectful in it. And I, I'm not the best at it. I mean, I feel very frustrated at people I used to do research with and their anti-harm tobacco harm reduction stance. But I mean, honestly, the best thing would be for me to keep engaging with them and talking. Um, I would love it if I could be part of something structured to make that happen. But when I left Penny, I moved to an FDA, so CEDAR, not CTP, FDA public-private partnership. And what that is, is these exist through FDA. They're built to engage the public with FDA, with um, like NIH, other government, and with industry, whatever industry that is. The one I was focused on was chronic pain. So that involved sometimes pharma, sometimes manufacturers. And these things exist, right? And the point, the reason they exist is because FDA found out years ago that there's things get slowed up and we need to be on the pulse. And so the work I was doing for this partnership, it was called Action, was talking about, okay, how can we design research to better get at chronic pain? How can we do this faster? And it's just frustrating that we don't have something real like that. And it's not for people not trying. I've heard of historically things like the Marvin Dialogues, and I apologize, I don't know of all of them, of efforts to sort of get everyone at the table in a real meaningful way, not just to look like it. And I, I assume it's been so hard with tobacco because of the history and consumers being treated um, disrespectfully in the messaging around tobacco harm reduction, just reducing a consumer to someone that just somehow was 
just um, tricked by big tobacco or they, the nicotine hurt their brain so they can't make decisions. I get it. I study addiction. I'm at the, an addiction society, but I, I don't think that's helping us have this. So I, I have ideas of how we could do it, but I think I'm pretty idealistic. Um, and I, I'm trying to be more of a connector now. That's why I love talking to you all. Um, you know, I really, that started at Penny and Joe Gitchell supporting me and learning that. And then I've just tried to keep doing it. And I think that there's synergy that, and I, I've talked to Danielle about this with Kasa and there's other groups right now advocating for people with lived experience, say with maybe you're using heroin, but you don't want or need treatment, but you should still be part of the conversation. Um, I think there's ways maybe there's to get connection and grassroots around that. Um, and I'd love to support that across with you all and other groups. Well, speaking of Danielle, I know that she unmuted. So I, I'm going to I'm going to pitch it to you, Danielle. Yeah, I was just going to. Oh, by the way, hello, Annie. And hello, Mark. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, I was going to mention, you know, in terms of this sort of disconnect, between, you know, researchers and the lack of communication between them and, you know, people who actually use these products, I'm sort of almost thinking, and Annie, you can correct me if this is, you know, you think this is off base, but to me, it almost seems like, you know, researchers and potentially even physicians have a really hard time with smoking because it's not like other, you know, things that they may come across or study or try to treat their patients with, right? Like you don't need to have diabetes in order to help your patient or a person get their diabetes under control, right? A lot of that is chemistry, you know, medication, things like that. You don't need necessarily need to have lived experience, you know, cancer, for example, to treat cancer or study cancer. But when it comes to smoking, there are massive amount of highly complex psychological and social aspects that sort of go, you know, way deeper than just the chemistry of what's going on. You know, there's definitely chemistry and things that happen there. But, you know, the, the psychological and social aspects of smoking are not something that, you know, you, you can take for granted, essentially. And so when Mark talks about, you know, really getting to know people, his customers, um, before, you know, recommending the best solution for them, I think that's, that's a key part of it. Because what they get out of smoking directly relates to what, you know, type of vapor product or harm reduction product is going to be most helpful for them. Does that make sense? For sure. And I hear you on that. Um, and I, and I don't want to cut you off Mark, but I do want to add, like, I just helped build like a, a guideline on tobacco use in like addiction treatment settings and talking with some clinicians about this. Like it is like a wall and there's some view of tobacco, like, and maybe it's disgust or something. They can't get on that level. Like Mark talks about and have that conversation. It's, it's almost, um, there's a barrier that I couldn't figure out why there. I do. Well, I just uh, oh, just one one quick point while we're, while we're talking about this disconnect. Um, I, I mean, I'm, I almost feel like we're going too easy on on some tobacco control. Just like it's a pretty big disconnect where, for a decade, you've had millions of vapors trying to tell these people that they have quit smoking with vaping. Like it is, it's, it is something tangible. It's not like some hokey pokey people saying that some vitamin helps their anxiety or whatever like they can prove i quit smoking with vaping yet no like barely anyone in tobacco control is still willing to admit that it's a a viable uh, tool for quitting publicly yeah it's gone beyond disconnect to the point they're trying to suppress us they're ignoring us 
They commission reports to give to Congress saying that we're bots, we're not even real people. They dismiss us on social media as trolls. They don't want to hear us. It's not a disconnect. It's gone way beyond that. But I wanted to back up. There's, um, I wanted to note that there's, there's yet another layer, and, and it goes to what Annie was saying, that a large number of at least my clients, what I see in here, they're coming in with additional baggage, additional addictions, additional mental health issues. And those things often also have to be addressed to find a successful solution for them. Yeah, actually, Matt doesn't know it, but he kind of set me up for this one and, and, and going uh, back to Annie. Um, in your research, uh, of course, with, with substance use, but um, also I, I would imagine underlying causes or root causes factor into this a lot. So I'm curious, have you come across people who are talking about uh, nutrition as a way to prevent or treat things like depression, anxiety, uh, and, and so on? Um, not... I, I would say in like my little, the things I'm obsessed about related to this in science, um, not nutrition. And I don't know a lot about that body of work. I should, I certainly see why it'd be important. Um, I, I know more and study more right now, other like general comorbidities um, with smoking and how it's, I guess the way I'm starting to look at it, it's very artificial sort of what I did in my research to just study relatively healthy, less uh, younger than age 55 people that only smoke. That was my dissertation. I don't think that, I mean, there's a lot of people that fit that. But there's a lot of people that are older. They have, um, you know, I, I'm not clear on nutritional stuff, but they have serious comorbidities, not necessarily related to tobacco and like, Mark was mentioning addiction and we, we sort of talk about people. So in tobacco, so isolated, Oh no, they're just tobacco users or smokers or whatever, or vapors. But the truth is more broadly in addiction. When we talk about someone with opioid use disorder in, at least in my world, we more often talk about all these other things, the trauma, the other overlapping substances, which like 60 to 70% of the time is tobacco. So people seeking treatment for addiction, 60 to 70% are smokers. And so I know this doesn't get to your question, Alex, about nutrition, because I don't really have a good answer. So I definitely want to punt that to another speaker. But I just think that this, well, goes back to what Mark said, talking to people, there's such a complexity in each individual, and in their goals and their needs. And also, like, what are they capable of, if they're actively, you know, trying, um, navigating methadone, they're still smoking? Well, you know, if they don't want to quit, that's their choice, then is there a way to educate them at least on safer alternatives, maybe they never change their behavior? Um, that isn't talked about a lot. Yeah, I'm, I'm encouraged. I don't want to jump the gun on anything, but, um, you know, we, we did actually just recently launch um, a post on our website. Uh, it's part of an overall um, kind of effort to engage people with substance use disorder and uh, mental health conditions uh, and, and, and really kind of it, it, it is about reaching out to, to those populations and, and seeing uh, primarily, you know, among our membership, we're looking for people who have switched to vaping and how that has been successful for them. And also, uh, you know, I think 
it's about exploring that relationship to nicotine and, and why people choose to use nicotine. And, and I think it's something that I don't know if we've gotten to the point of taking it for granted yet, but starting to look at nicotine as a way that people are self-medicating to manage symptoms uh, that come along with everything from your run of the, you know, retail anxiety to um, uh, a schizophrenia or, or other mental health conditions. Um, and so I encourage people to, to check that if you go to our website and, and just on the search bar, search mental health, you'll, that, that post should come up. Uh, and there's a way for our members to, to participate there. Um, but I, I am very encouraged that at least I think there are people who are getting the ball rolling. I know Helen Redmond has done some work in this space um, or on this particular issue, uh, reaching out to uh, 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 the people, unhoused people in New York and people uh, going to uh, harm reduction centers as well. Um, so uh, some promising developments there. And I am at that point where I'm losing my train of thought. But Danielle is here to save the day. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that I was sort of thinking about what, what Annie was saying is that so it seems like, you know, there are researchers, particularly in, you know, the drug use arena or substance use arena that are, you know, familiar with this sort of holistic approach to substance use, you know, looking at other like comorbidities, other issues, things like that. And I'm just sort of wondering you know, why that seems so foreign to people in, you know, tobacco control and tobacco research? Like, why, why is that holistic view completely lost? You know, does it have something to do with this sort of narrative that tobacco control has always put out there that, you know, and Annie and I have talked about this before, that, you know, people who smoke, you know, the reason that they smoke is because they were, you know, so stupid that they were duped by big tobacco companies. And so, you know, only a certain type of person would be you know, susceptible to being tricked by big tobacco. And therefore, you know, that's the problem, right? It's all just big tobacco issues. It's not potentially a symptom or a self-medicating, you know, situation for other things going on in someone's life. It's just, it's strange to me that they can't, you know, that nobody is thinking about that in terms of tobacco use. And that's so horribly wrong. Because there right. are so many people that, I, I mean, I, I, I learn something new every day. You know, I, I find out that one of my customers who's been coming in for years um, has Tourette's. And I, I expressed astonishment. And he said, well, this works. That's why you didn't know. I mean, I had no idea. Um, and, and so many people talking about how they, they actually recognize themselves that they're self-medicating for stress and anxiety. Yeah. Um, it's super important. It really is that, that people start to recognize this and, and address it. Well, I'll add, so an uh, area I focused on when I was studying and why I actually started studying nicotine, it wasn't for smoking. I wanted to study nicotine because in the eighties, in the 90s, there was a lot of literature coming out, right, that nicotine was a cognitive enhancer, pure nicotine. So they were looking at tablets. They were looking at gum. I studied the gum and never smokers. They were 18 years old. I gave them a bunch of gum. I made a placebo myself because I had no money, and I put Tabasco on it, and they hated it. But the whole goal of that work was to look at nicotine as an enhancer of cognition. Now, this is loaded, right? So... There's a history with um, 
someone by the name of Warburton, who was doing cognitive and cognition and nicotine research in the 80s and 90s of an affiliation with tobacco. So it became sort of a tobacco playbook comment that nicotine enhances cognition. But the truth is, I also went on to my postdoc and did a meta-analysis on this, Heishman et al., and it, it does, like the evidence shows. Now, there's more research on that, and I'd love to write about it, I just haven't had time, showing that there's certain people that might be more sensitive to those cognitive effects, which makes sense because in the research I did where I gave it to a bunch of 18 year olds that were freshmen at Wake Forest, they were all doing fine. I, you know, excluded anyone that had any type of cognitive diagnosis. So it was sort of like, it wasn't boosting them in ways they needed. So that's just one example where I see that because of this affiliation with industry, there's actual science. Now I'm not going around and claiming from my background researching it, like everybody take nicotine, you're gonna do so much better at work. Again, just like anything else, just like if you have ADHD and stimulants help you versus someone like me that doesn't have it and stimulants make me really nervous, you know, it depends. And again, it's individualized. And this blanket statements and the fear around, you know, for me to even write a commentary right now about cognition and saying nicotine benefits it, I would, it would instantly be a red flag to people to look at my affiliations. And I, I know that it would be assumed that I'm saying that because it's suggesting there's benefits to nicotine and nicotine is associated with industry. And sorry to keep going off on the industry thing, but it, it, it muddies a lot of this and sort of prevents the, the natural scientific dialogue, I think, about these things that Mark was mentioning, the benefits, the different um, physical and psychological states that we all come into the world with. And so certain drugs, certain stimuli certain food alter our behavior in important ways and this has been known forever and why wouldn't why would nicotine be an exception just like other drugs have benefits and they have risks yeah i think uh industry is really the biggest thing like you said and it plays a part in so many factors in the in the vape world and it, that's what really muddies the waters is, is you'll talk to a say like progressives or something and they'll they'll talk about how horrible the the uh drug war has been and so on and so forth but then you know they harp on the legalized dr drug sellers and it's like you can't have it both ways like pick your poison there's a lesser of two evils here and so you know that's industry is just what happens when you decriminalize a drug and they have to accept that at some point mm-hmm yeah, one of the studies that I'm and Annie, tell me if you know about this is uh, I'm interested to hear or see, you know, results from uh, the mind study. That's uh, I think it's Dr. Paul Newhouse with Vanderbilt University, um, Alzheimer's Drug Discovery Foundation, NIH. That study to me is really interesting because they are, in fact, looking at nicotine um, for, you know, mild cognitive impairment. And that obviously, to me, it seems like one of the most, you know, examples of like a very pure, very clean, you know, study that has like nothing to do with industry or anything like that, but really putting this, you know, to the test. And that's one that I'm sort of, I check their website probably like once a month, just trying to see if there's any updates or, you know, what exactly is going on with that. Cause I think that would lend a lot of credibility, you know, to this, like you said, you know, I've read a lot of papers where, you know, people are saying, yes, absolutely. You know, nicotine has um, cognitive benefits. It has, you know, enhanced cognition, different things. But then, like you said, there's also this, you know, sort of um, 
snap reaction from some people that's, you know, no, that's just a big tobacco lie from, you know, the eighties or something. And so that's one I'm really interested in. Yeah. And, and Newhouse's work is super cool. And that is how I got into this. So I was actually my first year of grad school studying cognitive aging. And then I saw that connection, right? So Alzheimer's, nicotine, and then I never um, worked with older adults in nicotine, but I think it's really valuable work. And on this note, and sort of taking it back to eSig Summit, I did submit a question through the app. I That was cool how you could do that. But it turns out I probably should have stood up and asked it to Benowitz because in his presentation, at the beginning, he noted nicotine is likely, you know, damages uh, or harms, you know, developing brains and can cause, um, and I, I'm misquoting him, it's on his slides, but basically this idea that it's likely that nicotine has these um, negative cognitive effects. But then on a later slide, he did note that nicotine could be a cognitive enhancer. And that, I get it, right? Like developing brains are different than adult brains. And but that isn't a distinction that's talked about. And that's one reason I really went hard at the Surgeon General's report, because it, if you look at my criticism, the, the problem was how, one, how they found the evidence. It was certainly biased, even if they won't um, agree with me. But um, the evidence they used to suggest nicotine damages the brain, there were some strong statements in there. You know, they weren't from nicotine. They were smoking studies. There, there is evidence suggesting otherwise. They didn't cite my meta-analysis. And I just, I feel like um, we can't even have an honest conversation about something like that. And that, you know, that dichotomy, certainly any psychoactive substance that a pregnant woman ingests, it could be um, maybe not a drug, but something else that alters development. I mean, there is that risk similar to caffeine. There's going to be risk if you drink caffeine and are pregnant. But it's almost like that animal research in nicotine, it's just been exploded into messaging that's coming out that nicotine damages the brain to the point where it's erasing all these decades of work on nicotine being an enhancer. And I, I feel like I'm stealing the, the show from Mark and, and um, Matt, so I, I won't keep you know going on about this cognitive thing, but maybe you all can have something in the future and I can dig into all the cognitive stuff, but it's very frustrating to watch as I've been part of that literature for many years. Don't worry about me. I'm just a regular here that just pipes up <laughs> once in a while. <laughs> okay. Matt's our, yeah, Matt's our additional color man. So, um, uh, thank you. Um, but I, I will say, you know, bringing it back to E6 summit and, and talking about this honest conversation that we all hope we will have one day. Um, you know, one of the themes that, that, uh, I, I, I see, I feel like I, I heard it in the conference, but also, uh, outside of the conference was, uh, FDA communication, throw the CDC in there too. And um, I think um, uh, Kathleen Crosby had an opportunity to respond to that. Matt Holman did his level best to, uh, I guess, recite policy back to us. Um, were, were either of you, uh, Mark or, or Annie, satisfied with their responses? And, and what, what could they be doing to make it better? Um, myself, absolutely not. And um, quit lying, period. They're not telling the truth. Kathy Crosby actually stood up there and said, our public message is misinformation. We only tell the truth when an individual asks us a specific question that is unacceptable, full stop. Unacceptable. Yeah, I wrote down a quote. Um, I believe it was her that she said, we have to follow the science. And this is um, 
it's just a frustrating thing because like Ray Naira presented, it's humans do scientific research. Humans are prone to bias. And that's not just how they design the study. It's how they interpret it, how they frame it, um, how they spin it, they report it. It's the journals that choose to publish it and or ch and alternatively journals that choose to not publish other studies. And so I, I like the idea of follow the science. When I was 20 in college looking to go to grad school, I would probably wear a shirt with that on it. But it's just it, it's it's um, honestly it's not really critical thought and science is not simple and if and it, it, like some of the messaging they were talking about you know they know where kids are at they're they're really hyper focused on mental health and so that's where they're going with their messaging and someone asked directly I apologize for not knowing who it was but like you know what's the cost if we choose to scare children and use these harm focused messages that are overstated or false you know, what is the cost? And I, I never felt like there was a good answer there that I never felt a sense of that being heard. And I, it just, it honestly feels like what I sense a lot uh, in tobacco research field. It's just like a lot of like, I'm a scientist, this is evidence-based and it's beyond tobacco. It's a problem with science right now that we can all throw that out there and we can all say it's a meta-analysis. It's the top type of evidence well we already know you can manipulate a meta-analysis to get what you want we saw this with glance and that the type of studies he put into it were flawed and not to just pick on him you know it happens across both sides so i i did not feel reassured and um i i wish i do felt feel that matt has constraints on him i got that sense i have no um, affiliation with FDA now or any type of knowledge. And honestly, I, I should know more about policy. You all are on the pulse of that. And I feel like going to ESIG summit got, got me caught up a lot because I'm really just looking at evidence a lot and studies and not really following that. But I was disappointed that there wasn't more like uh, honesty about the messaging that clearly is flawed. Speaking of uh honesty and and uh I, I mentioned the cdc earlier um annie in particular i'm i'm curious on if you have a have a take you're willing to share about brian king taking over at ctp <laughs> um oh man uh gosh um you know i don't know him and i wrote the critique of the surgeon general's report i i will say this i wanted to write about this and so I stood up at SRNT in Florence, Italy. Um, it was 2016. Um, the, it was a panel talking about the e-cigarette uh, report who just come out. And they kept talking about how evidence-based it was. And, I, you know, I've forgotten now, like, you know, random randomized controlled trial this and all this. And I, it, like... I stood up and my knees were knocking. I was so nervous because, you know, I was working for Penny at that time. My PhD advisors in the room, all these people that I'd studied with. And, you know, I, I had already sort of gotten that sense. So I'm the industry shill. But what I had to say was in the methods of the Surgeon General's report, I got up, got up and said it. And I said, it says, we added evidence after the year 2016 when it met, and I am going to get the quote wrong. You all can look it up, but like, you know, preconceived ideas. I mean, it's like basically saying, we, we biased this report. And I said it straight to Brian King. And his answer 
was really knee jerk. And it said, well, we paid contractors to do this. And he said some other stuff that was like not reassuring at all. And, you know, I sat down and it was just not reassured by his answer. Um, that's the only time I've ever talked to him. It was in public. My knees were knocking. And then I went home and I wrote the critique because I thought this is crazy. And so I will say, you know, his response, if you read it, the first line refers to me as working for industry. Everything else in their response doubles down on how high of a quality that report was. And as someone that writes systematic reviews and written guidelines and is involved in health technology assessment reports, like it wasn't. And it was time to have a real dialogue. And he did not. And that's very disappointing. And the fact that he's heading up CTP now is it's so disappointing to me for that reason. I know for other people, it's, it means a variety of things, but on a personal level, I would hope it'd be someone that's more engaged in the scientific process and we're all fallible. I am sure there, certain there are papers out there that I would, if someone challenged me on, I'm like, yes, I should have said this or that. And that was not part of the dialogue at all. And the only dialogue was that I was an industry shill. And that's why I left Penny. I needed more of a voice. And so here I am three and a half years later. And I, I certainly hope I could write something at some point to describe what I just told you all. Yeah. And hopefully, uh, you know, I, I assume that you're still writing for Filter. Um, hopefully that's a, a, a good outlet. And, and certainly we are definitely going to have to have you back on, on one of our programs um, this has been a really good conversation and I appreciate your, your point of view and all of this. Um, and, uh, you know, a, a lot of what you're, you're, you're sort of working on here, I think, uh, maybe, maybe from the fringes, uh, you know, without, without the real support that, um, folks need, uh, in, in getting information out there, keeping it accessible. Is there a way to, to kind of, I mean, I, I feel like I should know the answer to this. There are people who run journals that don't keep stuff, you know, stuffed behind a paywall. Um, mm -hmm. But what what do you envision, you know, changing in making all of this uh, research not only accessible from a, here, you can go access it on the Internet standpoint, but understandable so that the people who really need this information can can digest it? Yeah, um, there's got to be funding and like a, a structure to it because, you know, I could get a blog right now and I thought about that and just do my thing. You know, I had this thing I thought I de would develop called Science Snapshot and I'd just develop it, you know, like I'd analyze an article and share it with you all. And, and everybody knows listening, right? There's so much evidence coming in so fast. And then I'm biased, right? So I'm harm reduction focused. I grew up with smokers. I, I have you know, this experience with industry and with being like, you know, ostracized. So all that would seep into those summaries. So I think it needs to be a structured approach. It needs to be a trusted source and funded. But the challenge is, right, we have a group it, or a, different organizations. We have one called Truth. And it's it, like, we're not feeling trustful or truth, like that's truthful. So it's sort of like, how do you get that? Um, endorsement. And I actually, you know, to give it back to Mark, I, I think there's ways to do it in mass and to summarize things. And of course, you all are doing that. And I really appreciate the efforts you all are doing. And, but Mark, like having conversations like this, and Mark talking with individuals, it takes time, but it's real. And, you know, when Mark tells his story, 
and, and, and how amazing it felt when he switched to a vape device so quickly. I mean, that is profound. And there's no way to convey that in, you know, a brief summary for CDC um, in the way, like, you know, I'll speak for myself when he told me, I finally understood the relief, the energy that gives people that empowerment that, no, I'm not defeated by this thing I've been, you know, if you've been trying to stop. So um, I guess that's a long way of saying, I mean, right now I don't have an answer to that. I do hope that more of it can come like this and discussion and, and just trust built, not manufactured and forced on us from the you know hierarchy of academia and government. Yeah, well, you're you're in the right place. I know that the <laughs> especially the vapor industry is uh, accustomed to building the airplane in the air. Um, <laughs> and so uh, definitely among friends here. Uh, and, and Mark, I saw you unmuted there. Did you want to jump in? No, I actually hit it by accident. <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to wrap it up. I know, Annie, you have a hard stop at eight o'clock, so we're going to let you get back part of your, uh, your Wednesday here. Um, and, uh, I'll start by thanking the guests, but, uh, uh of course, uh, any, any, any burning issues, any, anything we maybe didn't pay enough attention to with regard to E-Sig Summit, any final thoughts from you guys? Well, I just want to add a, a big focus of mine is focusing uh, our lens more on older adults and middle-aged adults and sh shifting the balance more equal across the age spectrum. And it, 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 the youth focus is it's getting a little extreme, a lot extra. I agree with that. Um... My clientele, <clears throat> excuse me, my clientele is getting older and older, my average age here. Um, so that is what I'm focusing on, the older folks. Also, uh, just to throw in there, I'm also seeing, you know, Annie was talking about d doing a study, a cognitive study, and using people who were perfectly healthy, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, I'm seeing people, older people, uh, benefiting from nicotine yeah. use and people with issues probably because they have them. Um, okay. That's where we need to be looking at that. Um, the benefits yeah. of nicotine are for the people who, who need them um, because I I'm seeing it here. You know, I know it's anecdotal, but, but it's pretty obvious as well. Um, both for clarity of thought, focus for memory for older folks. I have a couple people who, um, you know, they're vaping to quit smoking, but they're older folks. And um, I noticed that they shook a lot and mm -hmm. brought it up and, and mentioned, you know, it, it, there's there's studies showing that, that, that nicotine can help with fine motor skills. And sure mm -hmm. enough, upping their nicotine level um, helped them with their shaking issues. <laughs> it's, that, it's that simple. It <sighs> makes sense. It does kind of after the fact, um, you know, it's a while to recognize these things, even for me, even when it's right in front of my face. But I also wanted to say my takeaway, and I mentioned it earlier, it's the first time I've ever been to one of these. I would recommend one of these conferences for anybody, anybody in the industry, anybody, any consumer. Um, it was amazing all the way around. I got a lot out of it besides standing up there absolutely terrified um, talking to everybody. You were awesome. Yeah, it yeah. didn't feel so awesome. <laughs> That's the most scared I've been in my entire life. Oh, 
it didn't show. <sighs> you, yeah, you did an excellent job, yeah. Mark. I, I'm, I'm with you. I, I, you know, I've been doing public speaking for a while now, and I always get off of stage or out of a presentation, and I have that immediate thought of, I have no idea what I just said. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I hope I still have a job in 15 minutes. Um, <laughs> And uh, speaking of which, I, I, I believe I may or may not still be on a panel uh, towards the end of the year and, and talking about the forgotten smoker. So mm. um, I will certainly, uh, you know, ref be referencing uh, your work, Annie, and, and, and your um, I, I know you had the filter and article about your neighbor in, in Baltimore. Yeah. Um, and uh, and of course, touch back on this this episode for reference. Um so with, with that, all of that having been said, uh, again, thank you guys, Mark Sliss, Annie, Annie Claycamp, for joining us tonight uh, on our on Kassau's Twitter Spaces Live. Uh, for anybody who is joining late, maybe wants to go back and listen to the whole thing, or you just didn't catch everything the first time through, uh, early next week, we will have this posted up on our SoundCloud. I think that's how long it takes to get the data back from uh, from Twitter. Uh, in the meantime, if, again, you want to look around and see what CASA has to offer, go visit casaa.org. We've got over 13,000 testimonials. We've got lots of opinions and feelings and ways that you can get absolutely involved in all of this. Um, also, while you're there, visit our store. Uh, it's under, I think it's under the resources tab uh, and, and pick up a t-shirt. It's not a huge moneymaker for us, but the real important thing is number one, they look good. And number two, get the message out there far and wide, give it as a gift, keep it for yourself, do what you will. Uh, but put it on a t-shirt and wear it around town. Um, I am fairly confident I'm missing out some other things here. Follow us on Twitter, of course, at Casa Media. We're Casa Media across all of the social medias, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. Uh, and of course, join Casa. It's absolutely free. We're you know rarely, if ever, going to hit you up for money. We really just want your engagement and we want to hear your voices uh, pushing back against all of these horrible policies and the off chance that we do actually get to support something. It's really important that we show up in force because these policies are about us and they shouldn't be made without us. Uh, and with that, unless I've forgotten any of the other closing points, I think we'll call that a night. Thanks, Alex. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye. Thanks, Annie.